Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Now, many of us have spent a good part of this past COVID quarantine with our heads bent over a computer or our ear to a cell phone. And sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we're communicating with something that's human when we're only texting a machine. Well, the dean of a business school at a major university says his online program is different. We, we maintain small cohorts. We want to make sure that it's focused learning and that they get to know us and we get to know them. That's Dean Morris of the College of Business and Analytics at, well, we'll surprise you in a few minutes. And also in a few minutes, we'll hear how our reading habits have changed in the wake of the pandemic. People read more on their computers, so we have more practice reading things on a computer or other means than off of a printed page. That's Sarah Heyer, who owns a local bookstore and will give us her views on how people read. And during a local farmer's market recently, a lady compared her retirement with her mother's. My grandmother, uh, you know, I watched her as uh, she aged, and my mother, and uh, they, once they were finished with their work, they had nothing left but housework. That's Sherry Holman who is retired, but it's not like her mother's retirement. We'll hear about that. And we'll hear from someone who wants to stop the bickering and bring the left and right together on something. We'll be talking with Chuck from Braver Angels in a few minutes. And Roger Ramjet will play the Beatleys. Uh, Beatles. Bob and Marsha Smith will help you to stay focused, and I need that with questions and answers, and I'll have a movie review. But not a new film. No, it's a film that maybe you should see again. The news is next. Boomer News from OK Boomer. A pandemic-related boost in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that's called SNAP, or it used to be food stamps, took effect on March 1st, meaning millions of Americans are faced with figuring out new ways to put food on the table. Navigating a post-COVID America on pre-COVID level SNAP benefits might be a struggle for the elderly and the chronically ill. The Agriculture Department reports that inflation has caused food prices to balloon by nearly 10% since last year. Anti-hunger advocates fear the newly reduced SNAP benefits will drive millions of people to a hunger cliff, as they call it, and deeper into poverty as they search for ways to pay for food. Advocates warn that the cut in SNAP funds will also have harsh economic consequences. The Food Research and Action Center, a Washington, D.C.-based anti-hunger nonprofit, says this. Every $1 in SNAP benefits distributed during an economic downturn generate between $1.50 and $1.80 in economic activity. Now, Congress passed a bill in 2020 that temporarily boosted SNAP benefits to help low-income people manage the hardships of the pandemic. As a result, every SNAP household received at least an extra $95 in benefits, and that went away as of this month. Connected with food. Food assistance programs can help older adults maintain access to healthy foods that support brain health and may prevent cognitive decline. For example... Several studies have shown that food insecurity may increase dementia risk and limit cognitive function during aging, often due to decreased diet quality and increased mental stress as you age. 
A new study published in Neurology found that older U.S. adults who participated in SNAP have lower rates of memory decline than their counterparts who were eligible but didn't participate in the program. Specifically, researchers noted that improving food security among adults age 50 and older can enhance their nutritional intake and lead to better brain function, thereby reducing the risk of cognitive decline and dementia. Adina Zek Azsori, assistant professor of epidemiology at Columbia University, says less than half of the older adults who are eligible for SNAP actually participate. Yet our findings show that people using SNAP experience two fewer years of cognitive aging over 10 years compared to those who did not use the program. He adds that with the number of people with Alzheimer's disease and other dementia is expected to increase, this low participation is a huge missed opportunity for dementia prevention. And this from Psychology Today. For more than three decades, a silent revolution has been unfolding without much comment, creating a seismic shift in American families and families in other countries as well. Three to four generations of families are feeling the effects. While the divorce rate in younger age groups has declined, people over 50 are divorcing in record-setting numbers. The American Association of Retired Persons coined the term gray divorce in 2004 when it published a study about divorce at midlife and beyond. In 2012, researchers at Bowling Green State University named this phenomenon the gray divorce revolution. Their study found the divorce rate for the U.S. population over 50 doubled in those two decades and more than doubled for those over 65. Since half of the married population is 50 and over, these researchers projected that as the U.S. population ages, by 2030, the number of persons age 50 and older who divorce will grow by one-third. Now, the explosion of gray divorces is not isolated in the United States, no. The same trends are occurring in Canada, the United Kingdom, Japan, Europe, Australia, and India. Canada's National Statistical Agency indicates that gray divorce and they spell it G-R-E-Y, has been consistently growing among those 55 and older, including those 65 and older, too. And rates are expected to increase as more people continue to age. The United Kingdom's Office for National Statistics announced in 2018 that the divorce rate among those 55 or older, dubbed silver splitters and silver surfers, has doubled. In the past two decades in Japan, couples married 30 years or more have seen their divorce rate quadruple. The Japanese are calling it retired husband syndrome. Oh, that's not particularly funny. And here's something else that's not particularly funny. In fact, it's, it's tragic. When some people died of COVID, the doctors asked the loved ones to donate the dead person's brain for science. So we're looking at an autopsy, several of them. Autopsy studies show that COVID-19 in some people lingers for many months even though they have no symptoms and test negative for the virus. Brains donated by people who died of COVID-19 also show widespread problems in the cells lining the blood vessels and exaggerated clotting. This evidence supports the idea that COVID-19 is a blood flow disorder that brings on brain disease. 
In the study, 20 brains were dissected and brain swelling was detected. The swelling was due to decreased blood flow and heightened activity in the so-called white matter in the brains that support the neurons that transmit thoughts and help store information. The researchers saw this even in young, previously healthy individuals. And a study from the National Institutes of Health of 44 complete autopsies showed COVID-19 was widely distributed throughout the body, including in the hypothalamus and cerebellum in the brain and neurons in the spinal cord. Especially relevant to long COVID, viral fragments were detected in some of the brains of people who died many months after the symptom onset. Evidence that the virus can persist in some people has inspired the design of multiple long COVID treatment trials with Paxlovid. The authors of the NIH autopsy study concluded, Here we provide the most comprehensive analysis to date of cellular tropism, quantification and persistence of SARS-CoV-19 across the human body, including the brain. Tropism, what's that? That is when cells, in this case, are involuntarily directed by a virus to turn and march in a new potentially pathological direction. One doctor asked, could it be that instead of returning to a healthy state, the brains of people with long COVID have been redirected toward a type of premature aging? I have long COVID. I had brain fog for a long time. In fact, I had to pre-record this program because of it. I couldn't read very well, couldn't ad-lib, uh, and I was sleeping a lot. And I was somewhat depressed. Uh, that is all clearing up. So in my case, I consider myself lucky. And now the AARP Minute. Consumers reported losing a record-breaking $8.8 billion to scams and fraud last year, according to a new report from the Federal Trade Commission. It was a 30% increase from 2021. Although a smaller percentage of older people than younger reported being victims, older adults lost more money. The median amount lost by victims 70 and older was more than $1,000. People in their 20s lost about $550 on average. Keeping your body healthy in later life may require some new routines. People 55 and older should have an eye exam every one to three years, doctors say. Keeping your teeth into your 80s and 90s is very common these days. Dentists recommend regular brushing and flossing to make it possible. Foot pain can lead to knee, hip, and back issues. Wearing supportive shoes, even around the house, can help keep feet healthy. That's your AARP Minute. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Hey, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about going back to school. Let's say you want to further your education but don't want to drive to school to attend classes. And let's say you live in a state that has plenty of business schools such as mm, Illinois. There's Northwestern, University of Chicago, the University of Illinois, Loyola University, and at least 20 more. But a big university in a small town located in the vicinity of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers where they come together might be your best bet. And you don't have to live in Illinois. Because this university, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, earned a top rating from U.S. News and World Report for the 2023 Best Online AMBA programs. The number 58 rank put SIU atop all other Illinois institutions of higher learning. And the reason? Well, we talked with Mark Morris, Dean of the College of Business and Analytics at SIU. 
Through a lot of hard work and dedication from uh, our faculty, uh, certainly our student services aspect of it too, in recognizing the need uh, out there for remote learning and then putting our all into it in making sure that we are presenting a quality product. What is the difference between SIU remote learning and some other place? We try to provide our special Saluki touch, that thing that makes us special from an in-person learning standpoint. We want to provide that also in our remote learning platforms. And so that's even to the point of student services or you name it, we want to bring that whole Saluki experience to them. And how do you do that? Well, we do that first by making sure that wherever possible, we have the same instructors, our faculty, who teach our online uh, courses. They also are teaching our on-campus courses, too. And so there's some consistency with respect to the, the content and with respect to the delivery and the pedagogy that's involved there. The other thing that we do is we try to make it to where it's more personal. The students aren't just a number. We're not, we aren't like some uh, programs where you may have you know, thousands of students in them. We, we maintain small cohorts. We want to make sure that it's focused learning and that they get to know us and we get to know them. And then through us getting to know them, we can better provide the services and, and the content that they need in a program. This is almost like being in person. Yeah, that's what we want to do. As much as possible, we want them to have that feeling. We want them to feel like Salukis, you know, um, similar to how our in-person grads are. Uh, and so even at the end, we provide a nice ceremony for them. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing uh, for the COVID folks as well. But we try to uh, see them all and get them together because many of them may have collaborated with each other as students online, but now they're getting to see those same individuals that they've known over the course of the curriculum in person and making those lifelong friendships and touches in a way that's kind of special. And so we want to absolutely um, provide that experience as much as possible. What I want to talk about is the specific instruction, the quality and the qualifications of the instructors, professors. Uh, where do they get their experience? Many of our uh, professors, they come through the training of a Ph.D. program from very high caliber universities. And oftentimes those same instructors will have a great depth of knowledge and experience out there in, in the profession. And so they're able to bring that knowledge that they gain in being professionals themselves and combining that now with the research that they're doing, the cutting-edge research, they're able to perpetuate and provide that to the students. You have that uh, legacy of, of what SIU has done, and, and we've continued that, and we've uh, implemented that into our MBA program. And so with that, you know, it's, it's interesting to see because many of the students who are in the, in the program, they are professionals themselves. And so now what you're doing is you're connecting them with people who have been out there more experienced and have had similar experiences to what they've had and adding on now this cutting edge knowledge and depth of research that, that is 
within these faculty members and them providing that to those students. So they can make a connection at, from a professional to professional level, but also from a faculty to student level. And we find that to be very useful and important. So what we're doing from, uh, with our um, students who were through the COVID years who were remote learners, we are actually having a reunion coming up for them. So the classes, if you will, of 20, 21, and 22 will all be coming back as well as 23 for the graduation ceremony and a special uh, thank you to them to bring those cohorts together, to get them to know one another, to, to say, uh, you know, we're glad that uh, they came through our program and, and are successful with it and that we're always here for them in whatever way they need. So then the other aspect of it is, is what we're doing with our remote learning in general. And we are going through the process of signing many what's called Saluki Step Ahead agreements with community colleges throughout the uh, state and uh, throughout the nation. I mean, we have Texas, Missouri. Uh, we're looking at Nashville. Just recently, we did a Florida takeover and we, um, Hillsboro, Hillsboro Community College. We have what, what, well. what are you doing with them? Well, the whole thing behind that is, is we're meeting the students where they are. We know that some students may be place-bound for whatever reason. And so to not have them come to campus, well, we understand that, but why not bring the campus to them? And not only the campus to them, but the campus experience. So our quality programs, our quality student services, our quality Saluki way. You know, and so that's kind of what we're doing with that, um, even to the point where wherever it's conducive and, and the student population needs it, we're even working through uh, in a hybrid fashion with them. So that'll be where they have some in-person instruction, but they'll have some online instruction too. So they're able to complete their degree with us, still take part in our career fairs, and still we are in our doing our takeover, Chicago takeover, et cetera, connecting them with our alums in the way that we would here on campus. So like I said, providing the total Saluki experience to them. I haven't heard of anything quite like that. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary. Uh, we're we're re very pleased with it, and uh, it's through the leadership of Chancellor Austin Lane. You know, um, he's, he's brought those ideas and energy here to the campus, and uh, we're just very pleased that the College of Business and Analytics is, is taking a big part in that process. And that is Dean Mark Morris of the SIU College of Business and Analytics. And we'll be talking to him next week about the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program that SIU has. And speaking of which, Jaden Sanders and Laura Lee Glick are both SIU accounting majors. And they are leading a team of about two dozen student volunteers and offering free income tax preparation services to low and moderate income community members. Now, we spoke last week with Laura Lee, who told me the program will continue after spring break, and that will go from uh, Saturday, March 19th through April 2nd. That's after spring break. Uh, SIU business students will offer the free tax preparation services from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. We are preparing um, at Wren Hall at SIUC, at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And um, Wren Hall is very easy to find on Google Maps or whatever map you use. Um, and we'll be in the basement, but we have people to lead you to our location. So it's very easy to find. That was Laura Lee Glick. Okay, Boomer. Thank you, Laura Lee. 
The free tax preparation services are available to any U.S. citizen, whether single or married, as long as their income does not exceed $58,000 and they take the standard federal deduction. Okay, enough of work. Let's go to weekend activities. Let's assume you're going to go to a party. It's going to depend how old you are as to what you generally bring to the party. You know, wine, beer, other things. Bob Smith and Marsha Smith are here, and they're going to be talking about generations and parties. Okay, hey, boomers, here's some fun trivia for you from Bob and Marsha Smith. What kind of drink would you bring to a party, Marsha? I'm giving you a choice here, okay? A bottle of wine. Wine, beer, spirits, flavored malt beverages, hard seltzer, or cider. Well, I'd bring wine. This is interesting. They did a study in 2021. The Harris Company did a poll of 2,000 adults to find out. You know, they asked, what would you bring to share at a party? And those were the six choices. Uh-huh. Wine, beer, spirits, flavor. Yeah. And it broke out differently by demographics, by age I'm sure groups. it did. So I'm sure the cider was the millennials. Those over 65 said they would bring wine, right? That's mm-hmm. the overwhelming choice of baby boomers. And I'll explain why this happened in a moment. What about the Gen Xers, the people born between 1965 and 1980? They brought uh, beer, different ales and stuff like that. They were split between wine and beer. Uh-huh. Okay, then how about millennials? If you ask them, people born between 1980 and 1995, what would you bring to a party? Well, they'd bring the cider. Well, what are the choices? No? <laughs> no, you're all wrong. The millennials were evenly split among all top five options, and cider was the last. Oh, really? Yeah. Why the differences? Well, the researchers suggested boomers were drawn to wine as youngsters because domestic beer was pretty dreary back in the day. Oh, it was awful. Craft beer wasn't even a thing yet, and beer was made by these big companies, and they had watered it down. Spirits and cocktails were what? Their parents drank, baby boomers' parents, so boomers were drawn to wine with their many varieties and nuances, okay? Mm -hmm. Gen Xers grew up with a whole different world. Craft beers began appearing from hundreds of small breweries. Creative cocktails Uh started. Remember the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise? Uh So Gen Xers like wine and beer. That leaves millennials, a bigger group with a longer future. Millennials have less disposable income, so they gravitated from expensive wine to craft beer and creative cocktails. Creative cocktails. And in 2022, the State of the Wine Industry report said because wine's primary users are shrinking or dying, (laughs) the baby boomers, and because wine producers aren't united in their stance on social justice and environmental issues, which are important to millennials, Wine sales could plummet by 20% in the next decade. Say it ain't so, Joe. This is from an article called Drink Up Millennials, Please, (laughs) from the New York Times. Okay. Well, very, very interesting. Okay, Bob, I have a question for you. Yes. Would you rather be a hobo, a tramp, or a bum? I would rather not be any of those things. Well, that's true. But there is a social ladder in that group. Okay, tell me the difference. Okay, this is according to Wikipedia. So a hobo by definition, is simply a migratory worker who travels by jumping the rails. He might take long vacations, but basically he works and travels the rails. So they're vagabonds, but they work. Yeah. Okay. They want to make some money. A tramp, on the other hand, never works if it can be avoided. He simply travels. Hence the name tramp, tramping around. That's correct. Okay, okay. And on the lowest of the social ladder in that group (laughs) is the bum who neither works or travels unless uh, 
prompted to by the police. <laughs> oh, like, like move along, yes, move yes, along. exactly. So a bum doesn't do anything. They don't work and they don't travel. Right. A tramp travels but, but doesn't, doesn't work. Uh-huh. And a hobo travels and works. Uh-huh. Oh. So I guess in that threesome, we'd want to be hobos. Yes, I guess so. Okay. All right. Thank you for explaining that. That's why I'm here, Bob. Okay, Marcia, you know the name Nike, Adidas, uh, Puma, Reebok. You know those names. They're all big names in basketball shoes today. But how far back do basketball shoes go? Oh, well, as far as basketball, right? And I don't know when that started. Well, basketball started in the 1890s in really? Massachusetts. Yes, it was... Uh, I think it was James Naismith, and he... Oh, put up the apple basket? Yeah, the baskets. They were. I, I think they were bushel baskets in a uh, gymnasium mm-hmm. in uh, Massachusetts, and that's where the game was invented. But basketball shoes came along a little later, and the Converse Shoe Company was one of the first that did them. 1917 were the first high-top sneakers huh. for basketball. So it's over 100 years ago. Yeah. And Converse has an interesting background there because the guy who started that company, he fell on a set of stairs and decided, I don't want that to happen anymore. So he invented rubber shoes, shoes with rubber soles to prevent future accidents. Well, see, now that's one of those profitability by accident stories. And that that led to basketball (laughs) shoes. How about that? Yeah. Okay, now, so who was Chuck Taylor? You've heard that name. I have. Our kid always wanted Chuck Taylors. Uh, He was a skateboarder. Mm Mm-hmm. And a basketball player. I will say, well, he must have been a basketball player. He was. You're right. He was an early basketball player. He's a 20-year-old professional basketball player who joined Converse as a... Basketball player. No, as a salesman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he loved playing basketball, but he joined them as a salesman. Here, no, no, yes. no. Back in those days, they weren't celebrity endorsers of things. Yeah. So what he did was he became a very active salesman in the company, and he actually went out and started promoting the shoe by holding free basketball clinics for coaches and players at high schools and colleges. And he was so famous, people used to say, if I need a coach, I'm going to call Chuck Taylor. He knows people. And he would actually recommend people oh, no to, be, to be hired as coaches around the country. He was the go-to guy. But he did these things for free. And at the end of each one of these uh, basketball clinics, they'd go down to the local shoe store and get our Converse All-Stars. That was the name of the shoes. Uh-huh. You know, He became so famous doing this that guess what? The company decided, let's rename the shoes the Chuck Taylor All-Stars. And hence, that's how it all began, back in the 1920s. That's yeah. how long that name has I been around. I thought that was just like around for 30 years or something. No idea it was that old. They uh, actually captured 80% of the market at one point. The NBA, the uh, NCAA, the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Olympic team all wore Chuck Taylor shoes. So did Michael Jordan. He grew up with them. So did Elvis Presley. You can find pictures of Elvis wearing these shoes. And Kurt Cobain. So it went through all the generations. Quite and then a fan club. They uh, failed to capitalize on the 1980s craze for sports shoes. And they did go out of business. But guess who bought them? Nike? Nike. Oh, okay. Yeah, they call them Nike Converse shoes or Converse Nike shoes, but they, they kept the name Chuck Taylor. And today, they sell nearly a billion dollars worth of shoes with the Chuck Taylor label. So that's where Chuck Taylor came from. I thought he that lives was on quite people, interesting. He lives on, on people's feet. So how much money do you think he made from all those shoes? Uh, pro- he probably didn't make anything. He was on commission for sales for 
right? That's right. It wasn't like a Michael Jordan, Air Jordan thing. Yeah. But people who knew him years later said, hey, he loved his life. He was on the road 365 days a year. He lived out of hotels. He never owned a house. He was always selling Converse shoes, and he worked for them for 47 years before he retired. And he had an unlimited expense account. (laughs) So that's Chuck Taylor's story. Wow. That's quite a story. Never got married, never had a family, just lived in a hotel. And enjoyed it. Yeah, well, that's the key. If you're happy, you're happy. That's it for the off-ramp. Bob and Marcia Smith, we just want to remind everyone, if they'd like to join us on the web, they can come to our site at theofframp.show. Now back to Robert P. Rickman with more on OK Boomer. OK, Bob and Marcia, thank you very much. And uh, the brain keeps sparking when I listen to uh, your uh feature because I'm always trying to anticipate what the answer is. And I most of the time get it uh, wrong. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Oh, my gosh. It's time for a coffee break. Okay, let's get up. Oh, it always hurts. And uh, Let's take a little walk. We're going to take the scenic route now. We're going to go past the Okay, Boomer billiard room. And uh, Janice Paul is racking one up right now, along along with the rest of the announcers. And let's go uh, past uh, our swimming pool, and the kids are playing. Oh, man, that was a cannonball. And we're going to be listening in a minute or so uh, to something that happened about 10 years ago, but it's interesting now because it's about two Americans who got caught on an ice floe. Okay, we're approaching the coffee room right about here, and let's get it going. I have it all queued up. I've got the grounds in it. I've got the water in. All I have to do is push the button, and it's going on. And, uh uh-oh, there's another note on the clipboard from the WDBX community calendar. Let me read this. It has come to my attention that someone has been slopping coffee on the community calendar located on this clipboard. This is intolerable. How can announcers read current events with coffee stains? This must stop immediately. Signed, Jerry Braunschweiger, chief engineer. Okay, well, it's not my fault. No one caught me doing it. Let's go to our first event. Uh, Dated today. It reads, and this means you, Robert. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to file it in the place where it belongs. Hey, hey, everybody. It's the White Raven from the Hot, Hot, Hot Louisiana Gumbo Pot right here on WDBX, Sundays, 12 to 2. Join me and all the Gumbo Pot heads where I'll be bringing you all the best music from Louisiana, New Orleans, the Bayou with a little bit of Delta Blues thrown in for good measure. So while you swamp rats, grab your Zydeco shoes, meet me in the Gumbo Pot at high noon. We always pass a good time, Chef. Peace, love, and Zydeco. Aye! Mmm, in a gumbo pot. 
Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. Tech Time also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, Tech Time is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. Techtime.it. Okay, Boomer. (laughs) Cup of Joe with Roberts. And a cup of tea with Kerry. Four American tourists who tried to have a quiet dinner on an Icelandic ice floe found themselves in need of rescue Sunday after their makeshift dining room began floating away. According to the Iceland Review Online, a gust of wind shoved the floe away from any solid ice, stranding the extreme diners hundreds of yards away, surrounded by icy waters of the glacial lagoon in East Iceland. They called an emergency number and were eventually rescued by first responders. Pal Vignesson said, when we arrived, it was quite comical to see them sitting on chairs and with a table on an iceberg. Yes, the dinner was over. You know, those people must get awfully bored. Hey, we don't have anything to do here. We've got nothing but ice and snow. We're going to have it for eight months. So let's go have dinner on an iceberg. Okay, let's go, folks. And they go out, and then for some reason, it separates from the rest of the flow, and they're swept out to wherever they're well, going. Well, that's, that's four American tourists for you. Oh, those are American tourists. Yes, sir, they were. Well, they were bored too, I guess. <laughs> Hey, while well, your typical bank robber usually makes an effort to hide his or her face or wear something nondescript, a female suspect who knocked over an Iowa bank on Monday did neither. Published security camera footage of the young woman who strode into the First State Bank in Stewart on Monday afternoon, fresh-faced and wearing a bright green sundress. According to cops, the unidentified redhead handed a teller a note demanding money and walked out with an undisclosed amount. She was spotted by a passerby hopping into the trunk of a navy-colored sedan, which had been parked in an alley before it sped away. I have nothing to say. Have that with your cup of joe? And your cup of tea. I'm Robert Rickman. And I'm Kerry Boylan. Hey, let's talk reading habits. My reading habits have changed over the years. I used to have three or four books going, you know, a novel or some technical manual or something. Now, I read all my news on my cell phone or my computer, and I haven't read too many books I do read them, but it takes a long time. Uh, One of the places I go to from time to time is the Confluence Bookstore in 
Carbondale, and uh, the owner of this, Sarah Heyer, talked to me about um, reading habits, hers, ours, and everybody else's. Obviously, reading habits have changed. So your question was about reading habits. I didn't see it at the bookstore, but we know from our experiences with other people that people can now read books on Kindle. They can do audio books. You can get books that way from the library, and people read more on their computers. So we have more practice reading things on a computer or other means than off of a printed page. Have you noticed with your own reading that sometimes you don't have the attention span that you once had because you're on the web. I don't know if it's because I'm on the web or I'm reading less or the things that I am reading. On the internet, I read by email. I'm reading things that I zip through. I have an intention when I read it, a goal. I just want to look for a piece of information and get and move on. Or I just want to make sure I've looked through all of the information in that email and I didn't miss anything that I'm supposed to do and then I'm done. So the reading has a different purpose. And so when I'm, I'm reading currently at home by the bedside is a book about Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore and his mystical philosophy. And it's slow going. And I'm reading a biography of Putin and I have to concentrate so I don't fall asleep. And I have to work at it a little bit more than I think I used to. When I was a student, I would read through, you know, we'd plow through a lot of textbooks. And now I don't know if I have the patience or something is missing. I've talked to several people who have said the same thing, and it, and it includes me, because I read about two hours of news on the web every day. But getting through a novel takes months Depends on the novel. Some of them you get sucked into and you have to stay up all night to finish them. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Somebody I heard on the radio was talking about how because our reading habits have changed, we really need to slow down and focus in order to absorb some of the reading material that we used to be able to read more easily. So we have to change our habits, not just change books, but slow down a little bit and take some quiet time and really get into the book. And that's what I've done. I've taken Sarah's advice. What I do is I, I uh, cordon off an hour during the day, turn everything off and sit and read, and it works. But it was hard to start reading a novel or a book once again. It just takes some uh, self-determination. That's Sarah Heyer of the Confluence Bookstore in Carbondale. Now let's go back to our youth when a singing group was auditioned on the Ed Sullivan Show, and it took America by storm. Roger Ramjet has the story. Roger Ramjet and his eagles fighting for our freedom. Fly through in and outer space, not to join them, but to be them. Roger Ramjet, he's our man. Hero of our nation For his adventures Just be sure and stay tuned to the station Please, Mr. Postman was released in the United States As the B-side of Rollover Beethoven in 1964 I'm including it in 1963 As it was part of the With the Beatles album Released in the UK in late 1963 It's a cover version of the Marvelettes number one hit of course, this was in a time before cell phones and email. 
letter writing was a common method of communication. George Martin was the producer. Writing credits vary depending on the source you believe. Georgia Dobbins, William Garrett, Freddie Gorman, Brian Holland, and Robert Bateman are listed by the publisher of the song, although label credits sometimes omit one or more of those names. Barry Gordy is also sometimes included in the writing credits. Here's the Beatles and please, Mr. Postman. Out of the past 1964, the Beatles. And I remember that song, gosh, when I was in sixth grade, the Beatles took over the country by storm. Okay, boomer. Okay, Patrick, hey. And now here is a lady who planned out her retirement when she was younger and then retired to her plan. That's pretty good organization, isn't it? Sherry Holman was an academic advisor at a local university and took some courses before she retired. We met up with her at a local art gallery. Well, I took uh, almost every art course that was available, and I got um, all of them, my master work in photography done. So that the only thing I didn't do was have my final show. So, so I have a lot of photography and a lot of art. And this was in preparation for? Retirement. <laughs> When did you start planning for retirement? Well, I guess when I was quite young, because, you know, I wanted to have something to do a lifetime, you know, and uh, once I left the university, then I had my art to fall back on. Now, you heard about me telling you the story of a lady I work with whose husband has retired and he does nothing but sit around and watch television. Was that something you were thinking about when you were preparing prior to your retirement? Yes, because of my grandmother, uh, you know, I watched her as uh, she aged, and my mother, and uh, they, once they were finished with their work, they had nothing left but housework. And uh, I just, I wanted more for myself than that, so. Let's talk about your art. Uh, one of the themes is the climate crisis, right? Correct. Could you describe some of the pictures that I saw? Well, I show animals in an environment that's not typical that we think of in art. Because, for instance, if you saw butterflies, you would see a lot of beautiful flowers. And when I, when I paint a butterfly, it's either in bad weather or the, a, a dry um, brown environment, you know. It's not the typical kind of environment you would expect to see a butterfly in. So it, to me, it shows the change that's taking place in our pollinators. That's Sherry Holman. I met her last fall. She is retired from Southern Illinois University and was displaying her art at Art Space 304 in Carbondale. Now, let's go back to the time when Richard Nixon uh, was between gigs. Here is a news conference with former President Nixon or President Nixon to be. 
and it's one of the weirdest news conferences you're going to ever hear. I'm Alan Robin, and I was sitting here with my partner, Mr. Earl Dowd. Good evening. And also with Mr. Westbrook Van Voorhees, Mr. John St. Ledger, and Mr. John Cameron Swayze. And the five of us are going to conduct a series of simulated press conferences. We've taken the actual recorded voices of the president and other prominent political people, and we put their answers with questions entirely of our own making. Well, why did we ever do a thing like that? Well, I don't know, but I think it sounds much more interesting this way. Our next guest was the last Republican vice president. He ran for the presidency in 1960 and looks to be a leading contender for 1968. Hi. You have been publicly feuding with Governor Rockefeller. Of course. Would it be correct to say that you believe he has a big mouth? Well, not as wide, I would say, as would appear at some times in the American press. Uh, let's go now to Mr. St. Ledger. Now, continuing with Governor Rockefeller, should he be chosen to run for president in 1968, when will you start campaigning for him? Within 48 hours after his defeat. <laughs> Mr. Van Vory. Sir, if we may make the observation, you seem to be interested in elections of all varieties. Would you care to speculate on who you think will win the Miss Rheingold contest next year? The Senator Goldwater has a... Uh a substantial lead at this point. <laughs> Mr. Swayze. When you were vice president, you were on speaking terms with many international leaders. Now, is your relationship with them still today as it's been in the past? Just what it's been in the past. Uh, then have you heard from Mr. Khrushchev lately? I talked to him this morning on the telephone. Oh, uh, really? Uh, where was he calling from? Uh, he had called me from Arizona. <laughs> If Khrushchev suddenly defected from Russia to the United States, what would you advise we do? Where you have a man who is vigorous, who is articulate, who has been effective, and who is honest, and who's done a good job, you send him back. The Immigration Department announces that Miss Christine Keeler and Miss Mandy Rice Davies have each applied for entrance into the United States. Uh, of course, they haven't been submitted to us on an official basis. Well, I understand that. What I'd like to know is this. Do you think Keeler and Davies should be admitted into this country? Well, I think it would be very bad for the country for us to go on a big spending spree at this time. <laughs> Sir, may we reminisce about your days in Washington? Of course. Now, I was wondering, is it true that the men's room attendant at the Capitol building used to get only $25 a week salary? He also has, of course, the opportunity to talk to the president, to the secretary of state, to our... <laughs> uh, sir, uh, you spend a lot of time traveling, of course. I believe you just recently returned from England. Uh, very recently. And according to the British press, on your recent tour of England, Sir Anthony Eden is quoted as having described you as a perfect ass. Have you any comment? But that's typical British understatement. <laughs> I'd like to 
thank you for allowing us this opportunity to speak with you today. You've been most cooperative. Is there anything of yours that we could keep as a memento of this visit? Take California. <laughs> For our final question, I should like to ask one of a personal nature that deals with your political image. I understand. It has been said by your critics, and I mean that, incidentally, to exclude us, but it has been said that you sometimes speak and act impulsively uh, without thinking. But I do think. Again, we didn't say that, sir, and many thanks for being with us. But I do think. I do think. There's no question in our minds. It was only hearsay at best. Thank you very much. I would just add this one point. Well, I'm sorry. I'm afraid that's all the time we have right now. But I do think. I do think. I do think. I do think. Okay, Boomer. One of the great directors of the 20th century was William Wilder. He directed Some Like It Hot with Jack Lemmon and Marilyn Monroe, Sunset Boulevard with William Holden and Gloria Swanson. He also directed one that is not quite as popular, but it's one I like, and I like it because I think it's the best one. It's called The Apartment. Everyone recognizes this music. You see, this schmuck, Jack Lemmon, had this apartment that was very, very popular. It became so popular that the head of personnel in the insurance company that Lemon worked was interested in knowing why. The head honcho, Fred McMurray. Look, Baxter, I'm not stupid. I know everything that goes on in this building, in every department, on every floor, every day of the year. You do? In 1957, we had an employee here, name of Fowler. He was very popular, too. It turned out he was running a bookie joint right in the actuarial apartment, tying up our switchboard, using our IBM machines to figure the odds. So the day before the Kentucky Derby, I called in the vice squad, and we raided the 13th floor. The vice squad? That's right. Well, what's that got to do with me? I've not run any bookie joints. Just what kind of a joint are you running? Sir? There's a certain key floating around this office, from Kirkaby to Vanderhoff to Eichelberger to Dobish. It's the key to a certain apartment. And you know who that apartment belongs to? Who? Loyal, resourceful, cooperative C.C. Baxter. Oh. Are you going to deny it? No. How could it deny it? You just let me explain. You'd better. Well, about a year ago, I was going to night school. I was taking this course in advanced accounting. One of the guys in our department, this in Jersey, had to go to a banquet at the Biltmore. His wife was feeding him in town. He needed some place to change into a tuxedo, so I gave him the key. And word must have gotten out, because the next thing I knew, all sorts of guys are suddenly going to banquets. Well, you give the key to one guy, you can't say no to another. The whole thing got out of hand. And, pardon me. Baxter, an insurance company is founded on public trust. Any employee who conducts himself in a manner unbecoming... How many charter members are there in this uh, little club? Well, hell, just those four. Out of a total of 31,259. So actually, we could be very proud of our personnel, percentage-wise. That's not the point, Baxter. Oh. Four rotten apples in a barrel, no matter how large the barrel. You realize if this ever leaked out... It won't! Believe me, it never again... It, 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 nobody is going to use my apartment for... Oh, yes, they will. And it will be Mr. Sheldrake. The apartment... Features a lot of bad things, sexual promiscuity, um, sexual harassment, infidelity, 
and some of the most ruthless corporate politics you can see. And Billy Wilder tied it all together with a big red ribbon because it was around Christmas and made it into a comedy, a black comedy. Let's visit the Christmas party and meet Shirley MacLaine's character and also Edie Adams as Mr. Sheldrake's secretary and former lover. Merry Christmas. Thank you. But you were avoiding me. What gave you that idea? In the last six weeks, you've only been in my elevator once Mm. and you didn't take off your hat. Well, as a matter of fact, I was rather hurt that night you stood me up. I don't blame you. It was unforgivable. I forgive you. You shouldn't. You couldn't help yourself. I mean, when you're having a drink with one man, you can't suddenly walk out on him because you're having another date with another man. You did the only decent thing. I wouldn't be too sure. Just because I wear a uniform, that doesn't make me a Girl Scout. Miss Kubelik, one doesn't get to be a second administrative assistant around here unless he's a pretty good judge of character. And as far as I'm concerned, your tops, I mean, decency-wise and otherwise-wise. <laughs> Cheers. One more. Oh, I shouldn't drink while I'm driving. You're so right. By the power vested in me, I herewith declare this elevator out of order. Shall we join the natives? Why not? They seem friendly enough. Don't you believe it? After a while, there'll be human sacrifices. White-collar workers tossed into the computing machines and punched full of those little square holes. <laughs> How many drinks did you have? Three. <laughs> I thought so. Wait a minute. I think I hear the sound of running water. I'll be right by. I'll be right here. I'm the branch manager from Kansas City. I beg your pardon? I'm Miss Olson, Mr. Sheldrake's secretary. So you don't have to play innocent with me. He used to tell his wife I was the branch manager from Seattle. Four years ago, when we were having a little ring-a-ding-ding. Oh, I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about. Just before me, there was Miss Rossi in auditing. And after me, there was Miss Koch in disability. And right before you was a Miss, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, on the 25th floor. Would you excuse me? What floor? You haven't done anything. Tim. Oh, what a salesman. Always the last booth in the Chinese restaurant. And the same pitch about divorcing his wife. <laughs> and in the end, you wind up with egg foo young on your face. Well, thank you, Miss Olson. Always happy to do a little something for our girls in uniform. You all right? What's the matter? Nothing. There are just too many people here. Just too many people here. That I mentioned suicide was part of this cheerful holiday mix. The film, he manages, Wilder manages to make this apparently dismal film into a comedy, not a ha-ha-ha comedy, but kind of a wry, smiling type of comedy. And it's highly recommended. Now, he uh, made uh, Some Like It Hot and a bunch of other ones, but that was my favorite. And ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up OK Boomer for this week. OK Boomer. Okay. Okay, Boomer. Okay. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Boomer. All right, knock it off. I'd like to thank Dean Mark Morris of the SIU College of Business and Analytics, Sarah Heyer, owner of Confluence Books in Carbondale, Sherry Holman, Bob and Marcia Smith, Roger Ramjet, and Janice Paul. I'm Robert Rickman. Have a good rest of the week, and remember, you always have options. That's the new model from OK Boomer. OK Boomer.